0: History of England, Chapter Eleven, Part One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England from the Accession of James the Second by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter Eleven, Part One. William and Mary proclaimed in London. Rejoicings throughout England. Rejoicings in Holland discontent of the clergy and of the army, reaction of public feeling, temper of the Tories, temper of the Whigs, ministerial arrangements, William, his own Minister for Foreign Affairs, Danby, Halifax, Nottingham, Shrewsbury, the Board of Admiralty, the Board of Treasury, the Great Seal, the Judges, the Household, subordinate appointments, the Convention turned into a Parliament, The members of the two Houses required to take oaths. Questions relating to the revenue. Abolition of the hearth money. Repayment of the expenses of the United Provinces. Mutiny at Ipswich. The first mutiny bill. The suspension of the Habeas Corpus Act. Unpopularity of William. Popularity of Mary. The court removed from Whitehall to Hampton Court. The court at Kensington. William's foreign favourites, general maladministration, dissensions among men in office, Department of Foreign Affairs, religious disputes, the High Church Party, the Low Church Party, William's views concerning ecclesiastical polity, Burnett, Bishop of Salisbury, Nottingham's views concerning ecclesiastical polity, the Toleration Bill, the Comprehension Bill, the bill for settling the oaths of allegiance and supremacy, the bill for settling the coronation oath, the coronation, promotions, the coalition against France, the devastation of the Palatinate, war declared against France. The revolution had been accomplished. The decrees of the Convention were everywhere received with submission. London, true during fifty eventful years to the cause of civil freedom and of the reformed religion, was foremost in professing loyalty to the new sovereigns. Garter king-at-arms, after making proclamation under the windows of Whitehall, rode in state along the strand to Temple Bar. He was followed by the maces of the two houses, by the two speakers, Halifax and Powell, and by a long train of coaches filled with noblemen and gentlemen." The magistrates of the city threw open their gates and joined the procession. Four regiments of militia lined the way up Ludgate Hill, round St. Paul's Cathedral and along Cheapside. The streets, the balconies, and the very housetops were crowned with gazers. All the steeples from the abbey to the tower sent forth a joyous din. The proclamation was repeated with sound of trumpet in front of the Royal Exchange, amidst the shouts of the citizens. In the evening every window from Whitechapel to Piccadilly was lighted up, the state-rooms of the palace were thrown open, and were filled by a gorgeous company of courtiers desirous to kiss the hands of the King and Queen. The Whigs assembled there, flushed with victory and prosperity. There were among them some who might be pardoned if a vindictive feeling mingled with their joy. The most deeply injured of all who had survived the evil times was absent. Lady Russell, while her friends were crowding the galleries of Whitehall, remained in her retreat, thinking of one who, if he had been still living, would have held no undistinguished place in the ceremonies of that great day. But her daughter, who had a few months before become the wife of Lord Cavendish, was presented to the royal pair by his mother, the Countess of Devonshire, A letter is still extant in which the young lady described with great vivacity the roar of the populace, the blaze in the streets, the throng in the presence-chamber, the beauty of Mary, and the expression which ennobled and softened the harsh features of William. But the most interesting passage is that in which the orphan girl avowed the stern delight with which she had witnessed the tardy punishment of her father's murderer. The example of London was followed by the provincial towns. During three weeks the gazettes were filled with accounts of the solemnities by which the public joy manifested itself—cavalcades of gentlemen and yeomen, processions of sheriffs and bailiffs in scarlet gowns, musters of zealous Protestants with orange flags and ribbons, salutes, bonfires, illuminations, music, balls, dinners, gutters running with ale on conduits spouting claret. Still more cordial was the rejoicing among the Dutch when they learned that the first minister of their commonwealth had been raised to a throne. On the very day of his accession he had written to assure the States-General that the change in his situation had made no change in the affection which he bore to his native land, and that his new dignity would, he hoped, enable him to discharge his old duties more efficiently than ever. That oligarchical party which had always been hostile to the doctrines of calvin and the house of orange muttered faintly that his majesty ought to resign the stadtholdership but all such mutterings were drowned by the acclamations of a people proud of the genius and success of their great countrymen a day of thanksgiving was appointed In all the cities of the seven provinces the public joy manifested itself by festivities of which the expense was chiefly defrayed by voluntary gifts. Every class assisted. The poorest labourer could help to set up an arch of triumph, or to bring sedge to a bonfire. Even the ruined Huguenots of France could contribute the aid of their ingenuity. One art which they had carried with them into banishment was the art of making fireworks— and they now, in honour of the victorious champion of their faith, lighted up the canals of Amsterdam with showers of splendid constellations. To superficial observers, it might well seem that William was, at this time, one of the most enviable of human beings. He was, in truth, one of the most anxious and unhappy. He well knew that the difficulties of his task were only beginning. Already that dawn which had lately been so bright was overcast, and many signs portended a dark and stormy day. It was observed that two important classes took little or no part in the festivities by which all over England the inauguration of the new government was celebrated. Very seldom could either a priest or a soldier be seen in the assemblages which gathered round the market-crosses where the King and Queen were proclaimed the professional pride both of the clergy and of the army had been deeply wounded the doctrine of non-resistance had been dear to the anglican divines it was their distinguishing badge it was their favourite theme if we are to judge by that portion of their oratory which has come down to us they had preached about the duty of passive obedience at least as often and as zealously as about the trinity or the atonement their attachment to their political creed had indeed been severely tried and had during a short time wavered but with the tyranny of james the bitter feeling which that tyranny had excited among them had passed away the parson of a parish was naturally unwilling to join in what was really a triumph over those principles which during twenty-eight years his flock had heard him proclaim on every anniversary of the martyrdom and on every anniversary of the restoration the soldiers too were discontented they hated popery indeed and they had not loved the banished king but they keenly felt that in the short campaign which had decided the fate of their country theirs had been an inglorious part forty fine regiments a regular army such as has never before marched to battle under the royal standard of england had retreated precipitately before an invader and had then without a struggle submitted to him that great force had been absolutely of no account in the late change had done nothing towards keeping william out and had done nothing towards bringing him in. The clowns who, armed with pitchforks and mounted on cart horses, had straggled in the train of Lovelace or Delamere, had borne a greater part in the revolution than those splendid household troops whose plumed hats, embroidered coats, and curveting chargers the Londoners had so often seen with admiration in Hyde Park. The mortification of the army was increased by the taunts of the foreigners which neither orders nor punishments could entirely restrain. At several places the anger which a brave and high-spirited body of men might in such circumstances be expected to feel showed itself in an alarming manner. A battalion which led Sir Ancester put out the bonfires, huzzaed for King James, and drank confusion to his daughter and his nephew. The garrison of Plymouth disturbed the rejoicings of the county of Cornwall, blows were exchanged, and a man was killed in the fray. The ill-humour of the clergy and of the army could not but be noticed by the most heedless, for the clergy and the army were distinguished from other classes by obvious peculiarities of garb. Black coats and red coats, said a vehement Whig in the House of Commons, are the curses of the nation. But the discontent was not confined to the black coats and the red coats, The enthusiasm with which men of all classes had welcomed William to London at Christmas had greatly abated before the close of February. The new king had, at that very moment at which his fame and fortune reached the highest point, predicted the coming reaction. That reaction might indeed have been predicted by a less sagacious observer of human affairs, for it is to be chiefly ascribed to a law as certain as the laws which regulate the succession of the seasons, and the course of the trade-winds. It is the nature of man to overrate present evil, and to underrate present good, to long for what he has not, and to be dissatisfied with what he has. This propensity, as it appears in individuals, has often been noticed both by laughing and by weeping philosophers. It was a favourite theme of Horace and of Pascal, of Voltaire and of Johnson, to its influence on the fate of great communities may be ascribed most of the revolutions and counter-revolutions recorded in history. A hundred generations have elapsed since the first great national emancipation, of which an account has come down to us. We read in the most ancient of books that a people bowed to the dust under a cruel yoke, Scourged to toil by hard taskmasters, not supplied with straw, yet compelled to furnish the daily tale of bricks, became sick of life, and raised such a cry of misery as pierced the heavens. The slaves were wonderfully set free. At the moment of their liberation, they raised a song of gratitude and triumph, but in a few hours they began to regret their slavery and to murmur against the leader who had decoyed them away from the savoury fare of the house of bondage, to the dreary waste which still separated them from the land flowing with milk and honey. Since that time the history of every great deliverer has been the history of Moses retold. Down to the present hour rejoicings like those on the shore of the Red Sea have ever been speedily followed by murmurings like those at the waters of strife, The most just and salutary revolution cannot produce all the good that had been expected from it by men of uninstructed minds and sanguine tempers. Even the wisest cannot, while it is still recent, weigh quite fairly the evils which it has caused against the evils which it has removed, for the evils which it has caused are felt, and the evils which it has removed are felt no longer thus it was now in england the public was as it always is during the cold fits which follow its hot fits sullen hard to please dissatisfied with itself dissatisfied with those who had lately been its favourites the truce between the two great parties was at an end separated by the memory of all that had been done and suffered during a conflict of half a century they had been during a few months united by a common danger but the danger was over, the union was dissolved, and the old animosity broke forth again in all its strength. James had, during the last year of his reign, been even more hated by the Tories than by the Whigs, and not without cause. For the Whigs he was only an enemy, and to the Tories he had been a faithless and thankless friend. But, The old royalist feeling, which had seemed to be extinct in the time of his lawless domination, had been partially revived by his misfortunes. Many lords and gentlemen, who had in December taken arms for the Prince of Orange and a free Parliament, muttered two months later that they had been drawn in, that they had trusted too much to his highness's declaration, that they had given him credit for a disinterestedness which, it now appeared, was not in his nature. They had meant to put on King James, for his own good, some gentle force, to punish the Jesuits and renegades who had misled him, to obtain from him some guarantee for the safety of the civil and ecclesiastical institutions of the realm, but not to uncrown and banish him, for his maladministration, gross as it had been, excuses were found. Was it strange that, driven from his native land while still a boy, by rebels who were a disgrace to the Protestant name, and forced to pass his youth in countries where the Roman Catholic religion was established, he should have been captivated by that most attractive of all superstitions? Was it strange that, persecuted and calumniated as he had been by an implacable faction, his disposition should have become sterner and more severe than it had once been thought— and that when those who had tried to blast his honour, and rob him of his birthright, were at length in his power, he should not have sufficiently tempered justice with mercy. As to the worst charge which had been brought against him, the charge of trying to cheat his daughters out of their inheritance by fathering a supposititious child, on what grounds did it rest? Merely on slight circumstances, such as might well be imputed to accident, or to that imprudence which was but too much in harmony with his character." did ever the most stupid country justice put a boy in the stocks without requiring stronger evidence than that on which the english people had pronounced their king guilty of the basest and most odious of all frauds some great faults he had doubtless committed nothing could be more just or constitutional than that for those faults his advisers and tools should be called to a severe reckoning nor did any of those advisers and tools more richly deserve punishment and the round sectaries, whose adulation had encouraged him to persist in the fatal exercise of the dispensing power. It was a fundamental law of the land that the king could do no wrong, and that, if wrong were done by his authority, his counsellors and agents were responsible. That great rule, essential to our polity, was now inverted— The sycophants, who were legally punishable, enjoyed impunity. The king, who was not legally punishable, was punished with merciless severity. Was it possible for the cavaliers of England, the sons of the warriors who had fought under Rupert, not to feel bitter sorrow and indignation when they reflected on the fate of their rightful liege lord, the heir of a long line of princes, lately enthroned in splendour at Whitehall, now an exile, a suppliant, a mendicant? His calamities had been greater than even those of the blessed martyr from whom he sprang. The father had been slain by avowed and mortal foes. The ruin of the son had been the work of his own children. Surely the punishment, even if deserved, should have been inflicted by other hands. And was it altogether deserved? Had not the unhappy man been rather weak and rash than wicked? Had he not some of the qualities of an excellent prince?' His abilities were certainly not of a high order, but he was diligent, he was thrifty, he had fought bravely, he had been his own minister for maritime affairs, and had, in that capacity, acquitted himself respectably. He had, till his spiritual guides obtained a fatal ascendancy over his mind, been regarded as a man of strict justice, and, to the last, when he was not misled by them, he generally spoke truth and dealt fairly." with so many virtues he might if he had been a protestant nay if he had been a moderate roman catholic have had a prosperous and glorious reign perhaps it might not be too late for him to retrieve his errors it was difficult to believe that he could be so dull and perverse as not to have profited by the terrible discipline which he had recently undergone and if that discipline had produced the effects which might reasonably be expected from it England might still enjoy, under her legitimate ruler, a larger measure of happiness and tranquillity than she could expect from the administration of the best and ablest usurper. We should do great injustice to those who held this language, if we supposed that they had, as a body, ceased to regard popery and despotism with abhorrence, Some zealots might indeed be found who could not bear the thought of imposing conditions on their king, and who were ready to recall him without the smallest assurance that the Declaration of Indulgence should not be instantly republished, that the High Commission should not be instantly revived, that Peter should not again be seated at the council board, and that the fellows of Magdalen should not again be ejected. But the number of these men was small, On the other hand, the number of those Royalists who, if James would have acknowledged his mistakes and promised to observe the laws, were ready to rally round him, was very large. It is a remarkable fact that two able and experienced Statesmen, who had borne a chief part in the Revolution, frankly acknowledged, a few days after the Revolution had been accomplished, their apprehension that a restoration was close at hand. If King James were a Protestant, said Halifax to Reesby, We could not keep him out four months. If King James, said Danby to the same person about the same time, would but give the country some satisfaction about religion, which he might easily do, it would be very hard to make head against him. Happily for England, James was, as usual, his own worst enemy. No word indicating that he took blame onto himself on account of the past, or that he intended to govern constitutionally for the future, could be extracted from him. Every letter, every rumour that found its way from Saint-Germain to England, made men of sense fear that, if, in his present temper, he should be restored to power, the second tyranny would be worse than the first. Thus the Tories, as a body, were forced to admit, very unwillingly, that there was, at that moment, no choice between William and public ruin. They therefore, without altogether relinquishing the hope that he who was king by right might at some future time be disposed to listen to reason, and without feeling any thing like loyalty towards him who was king in possession, discontentedly endured the new government. End of chapter 11 Part 1